I'm Larry Barsh, and you are listening to Specifically for Seniors, the podcast for those of us in the Remember When generation. Today on Specifically for Seniors, we are fortunate to have as our guest Marion Leah Knapp. Marion received her BA degree in English literature from Boston University, an MA degree in anthropology from Hunter College, and at the age of 70, a PhD in environmental studies from Antioch University, New England. Her goal for doctoral work was to understand the complex environment in which people age. She values the gift of experience and believes that it is never too late to pursue a dream. Marion has published four books, Aging in Places, Reflective Preparation for the Future, A Steadfast Spirit, The Essence of Caregiving, The Outermost Cape, Encountering Time, and her latest book about which we'll talk later, Prohibition Wine, A True Story, of one woman's daring in 20th century America. Marion, thanks for coming on specifically for seniors. Welcome. Well, thank you. Um, I, being a senior myself, senior issues are very much a part of who I am uh, and what I think about a lot. Um, I do wanna just say the book on Cape Cod that I, you mentioned was co-authored with my photographer friend, Vivian Goldman. I just want to make sure we mention her name. Okay. I'd like to take a moment and read a brief passage uh, from the preface of your book, Aging in Place, that I think we've all run into and we all experience. Quote, I am a member of a group that is much observed and reported on by mostly well-intentioned people. I am an older adult. The literature, news, predictions, and precautions about me and everyone else who falls into my category is abundant. Countless perspectives are represented and reported on through all types of media. Debate abounds about my financial drain on the economy, current and future health problems, psychological and emotional challenges, impact on my family, where I might live, how I will get around, my threat as a driver, and my inevitable decline into neediness. Certainly there are some less dismal views about me, that I can be a contributor to society, a role model for younger people, an impetus for change, and a lifelong learner. But these commentaries seem to be outweighed by the predictions of me as a quote-unquote problem adult. This seems to be our society's viewpoint as opposed to that of other countries. Why do you suppose that is? Well, that's an excellent question. I don't know. Well, first of all, I don't really know enough about other countries and other cultures to, to say that 
older people are more valued uh, or treated better in different places from here. Um, I will say that um, there are actually many myths about other countries, which I have not really investigated fully, but for example, um, there's some observation about some Asian cultures where older people are highly regarded and respected. And that may be true to some extent, but I also know because I have a family member who's Japanese uh, in origin, that everything isn't so wonderful, that respect for adults doesn't um, always meet what we would, uh, we are here in the United States would think of as being respectful. So one of the problems in some Asian countries is there's been a limit on the number of children that people were able to have so that um, sometimes it's extremely difficult if there's only one child for that one child to manage the ongoing needs of an older person. Um, so I, I think in some places it may be better than here, but the older I get and the more I learn, I'm, I really don't know exactly what that looks like. Um, I think some of the um, problems in this country is a, a sort of um, an emphasis on the financial status of older people. Like people um, don't really, uh, some people don't really respect um, Medicare, for example, or, you know, various other health care options for older people, thinking that that's a big drain on society. Um, actually, healthcare experts certainly will observe that older people need more healthcare than younger people. That's true, but sometimes that um, that giving of the healthcare is um, uh, not well accepted by younger people. You mentioned respect. Is it really respect that we want, or acceptance as still functional? human beings? Well, actually, that's a great point. Um, I think actually it's a, probably a combination of both, because when I use the word respect, I really do mean the fact, th this, this, I do mean that many people will um, somehow, they see gray hair, as I have and you have, oh. meaning showing that or indicating that the head underneath that hair is empty that there's no um, thought going on, that it's just total emptiness, which of course is not true. Um, so it's both acknowledgement that people still have brains as they get older. Uh, some of those brains may not function quite as well as they did when, they, when that person was younger. Um, and also respect for the kinds of contributions that older people can make. So I think it's a combination of both. May not function as well or just may not function the same way our brains did when we were younger. Well, what I, one of the things at one point I want to make is that I can only talk from my experience and my the educational background that I have. And it's, I'm I'm a unique person. You're a unique person. Everyone who may be watching this is a unique person. So there's no, as far as I can see, there's no overall uh, 
person that that's all the same aging person. So what I've observed about myself is that my brain actually is in some ways far better than it was when it was younger. It, because I can see broader trends. I can see, um, uh, you know, how I can see different people and how they react and, and one, treat them as individuals, but also be able to observe and put together a new pattern of thinking. Um, and actually, one of the people that, who influenced me a lot in this was um, a physician. And I'm, if I, I don't have, I have his, his name will come to me at, on the top of my head. Um, um, the, uh, the Aging Brain is the name of the book. Um, and I'm blanking on his name. But basically, that's what he pointed out, is that as we age, our brains are different from younger people. Younger people tend to get very specific very quickly, um, whereas older people have the opportunity and the, the capacity to step back um, and, and have a much broader view, much more integrated view of the world than many younger people do. And I, I have actually found that to be very true about myself. I was just about to say when I was younger, I was very detail oriented. Yeah. I'd go to a lecture and I'd take copious notes on every small point. And as I'm getting older, the ability to remember detail is not as important to me because I can always look it up somewhere as an increasing ability to conceptualize. That's right. That's to, right. To get a broader concept. Right. And that's what older people can bring, but that's not really recognized. Uh, that, that value of a comprehensive view that older people can bring to any situation. Well, it, in, in the younger mind, it's like Twitter brief paragraphs of right. information. Um, and as you get older, you can't do it in that limited amount of space because there's bigger things to consider. You know, I actually worry about that, that many younger people may not develop that ability to see broader concepts and broader spectrum of happenings um, be, because of their tra this training in Twitter, where you have to say things in X number of syllables, I don't even know what that is. But I, I'm wonder, I wonder about whether or not train the young people are being trained from a very young age to be able to say something in as short a, a way as possible. And I'm not so sure that's so good. One thing that now that you brought it up, that has always interested me is the use of the word training as opposed to the word education. Uh, they say now doctors are being trained in X uh, concepts as opposed to being educated. And, and that's, that's, I reserve, I'm a dentist. Yes, I know so that. So <clears throat> I find that 
training means learning how to work upside down in a mirror. That takes training. Whether or not a treatment needs to be done on a particular patient or can be tolerated by a particular patient, that's education. Right. Now, um, again, I can only talk from my own experience. I have, um, I have grandchildren, one of whom is now in college, um, and she chose to go to a small liberal arts college so that she could get a very broad education. And so I, I think it's wonderful that she decided that she wanted to do that because I've seen many other people that too early in their lives decide what they want to be and then gear all of their training and, oh, and education towards that one specific goal and missing out on, uh, you know, endless aspects of our of culture um, that would benefit them in all decision-making about their professional life, including medicine and dentistry. Yes, agree. What can you tell us about your own experience as an aging adult? Uh, well, mostly I'm extremely happy to be aging. I, I feel the benefits of all of my life experience so far, but I've been very, very lucky. Physically, I'm healthy. Mentally, my brain still seems to be working. I'm still writing. Um, I'm still able to do a podcast with you. Um, so I f And so many of my friends um, don't have that. Some do, but... Um, and we can talk about this a little bit later. I'm in the middle of writing my next, my fifth book, which is about a group of women that I grew up with who, who were all, who we became friends in what was then junior high school when we were 11 and a half years old. And here we are now 83 and we're still friends as a group. Um, that in that group, there were 12 originally, four have died. Um, Two from cancer, one from heart disease, and one from COVID. Another of that group has dementia. And so I can see in this very small cadre of women, all exactly the same age, this huge range of capability, competence, and health. Um, and so my, I'm in the lucky part of that group of 12. Um, and I... You know, but I'm very aware that anything can happen tomorrow. And I, I do the best I can to keep myself healthy, but I have no idea something could happen to me tomorrow. I am lucky as well to be able to conduct a podcast right. when most of my friends don't know what a podcast is or how to access one. But, but I, I, I want to come back to this idea and your, what your, your comments are making me kind of think more about my own experience. <clears throat> you mentioned in the introduction that I went back to school to get a PhD and I did, I passed my dissertation defense right before my 70th birthday. Um, 
Now, I, I don't know exactly why I did that, except that I had been in this master's program and life circumstances got in the way of my being able to continue on to get a PhD. Um, and so when I was about 63, or I guess it was around 63, um, I was taking care of many, many older people. My mother, aunts, uncles, a disabled cousin. I was the caregiver, and that's what my second book is about. Um, and it that experience, being a caregiver for so many people who I loved, they, they these were people who really influenced me and how I looked at life. I began to. I sat down one day and said, "This is going to happen to me. What do what?" What would be my priority? What would I feel badly about if I didn't do when I was their age in their 90s? And it just popped into my head, go get that PhD. It was like, boom, I didn't even have to think about it. And so I applied. They accepted me. I was kind of an unusual student. I was, first of all, much older than many of the other students. Um, I designed a dissertation and a topic that really didn't fit in their regular curriculum, but they said fine. Um, and that opened up worlds for me. And I had to learn all kinds of new things that I never would have learned before. One, how do you write a dissertation? How do you frame a, a question? How do you, like I was never good at science. I had, or, um, I had to do a research project using statistics, which I hated, but I had to do it and I did it. I didn't do great, but I passed the, you know, the course. So it's setting up challenges um, that, um, uh, that, that it's setting up challenges for myself that keeps me going. And I, I see this pattern in my life now, looking back over all of these years, that's, I think, what keeps me going, is constantly creating a challenge for, my, for me. But I also want to kind of reflect on something you said, maybe even before you started the podcast, about people doing mahjong and people, you know, maybe not thinking about things. And for me, that's, I think that's great. I think it's wonderful because I know I tried Mahjong, I kind of lost patience. I, I'm not a good games person, um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an intellectual challenge to play some of those games. Um, and th that's what those people have decided will help challenge them every day. Also, it's a very social thing for, to people to participate in an activity, you know, like Canasta or uh, Mahjong or whatever, bridge is another. So there's great benefit to, to that kind of activity. That's not what I chose to do, but I am not, I don't feel at all critical of people who want to, you know, who use those things as, as their way of staying engaged. Um, and I have, I have a really very close friend who is a, a retired attorney and when she retired, she just wanted to be quiet. She just wanted to go for walks, listen to music, um, um, talk to people now and then, but, and is very happy doing that. She 
She does not feel intellectually deprived because she feels she has done so much in her life and with a lot of angst and tension being an attorney. And right now she just wants to kind of be peaceful. Thank you for explaining that. Uh, And thank you for explaining uh, my continual uh, searching for challenges. You're helping me understand myself in a way that I didn't before. Well, good. That's good because, and I, I really feel people should not beat themselves up. If like I happen to choose to go get a PhD and people said to me, oh, I could never do that. I said, that's fine. That's what I needed to do. The other thing was I never doubted that I would finish. And I could have easily dropped out in my 60s, my late 60s. But I somehow knew that I was going to do this come hell or high water. And it was just natural. I did I took all the courses. I did extra work. I wrote the dissertation, I passed the defense, I did all of these things, and I never doubted, never doubted that I would be able to finish that. It was the best, other than having my kids and stuff, it was absolutely the best thing I ever did. Again, thank you for explaining some stuff to me. Uh, When I retired from dentistry, I learned to program websites as a challenge and did it commercially for a while Mm -hmm. and then other things. And now the podcast. So you're helping me understand myself a lot. Right. And you're doing what you want to do. Maybe you're, maybe it's acknowledging it that you, that you are a constant challenger to yourself, but that doesn't mean, and, and most people, unless they have some kind of, they've lost ability to do things most people are challenging themselves in the way that makes them feel good. And feeling good about yourself when you're older is extremely important. So whatever it is, doesn't matter. As long as you've got that Mahjong group on Wednesday afternoon at three o'clock and you're going to see your friends and you're going to have a cup of coffee and you can gossip and, and play the game and use your skills, that's wonderful. I read a phrase you had once written that stuck with me, aging with intent. What's that mean? I don't know. I don't remember when I wrote it or what I meant when I wrote it. But um, basically, I I can actually think about that. So I'm, I'm I'm not aging. I'm not, I don't feel that I'm drifting. Every day when I get up, I've set myself up to have, Um, a purpose. That doesn't mean I necessarily have a specific goal that I'm going to work on. But right now, my intent, my aging intent is to keep my brain active. And the way I'm doing that is writing my next book. So aging with intent, actually, you're asking me a great question, because I'm not sure what I meant when I said that, except that for me, having some kind of purpose um, keeps my brain active. And that's the thing that I focus on the most is trying to keep my brain active. And I um, still, and but I'm facing some of the things that lots of people my age are facing. Like I can't, couldn't remember the name of the author of that book 
or um, Gene Cohen is his name. So if I give myself 10 minutes, it might pop into my head. Gene Cohen, um, The Aging Brain. Um, so I find that, and I actually learned not to panic about that. I've learned that, okay, it's in there somewhere, it'll come out, and when it does, then I'll feel good that I remembered. I think you experienced something we all do. Right. You were talking about Mahjong at Canasta. We all like to feel content as we age. What do you do to find contentment? Oh, that's a great question. You know, it's sort of like the question, I have a friend who will always ask me, what do you do for fun? And I bristle at that because I feel I'm having fun. You know, I mean, I could talk about the superficial things like going to the movies or having dinner with friends. Those actually are not superficial. But for me, so being you know, what do I do for contentment? I'm doing what I'm doing. I've, I'm, I'm comfortable with what I'm doing. I'm not feeling um, that I should be doing something else. I've defined something and I'm working on it. That's contentment for me. And I'm also lucky because I have children and grandchildren who are close by and we get together, we see each other. Of course, we didn't see each other for almost two years um, during COVID, but now we're able to get together again. Um, contentment means that my grandkids will call me and say, hey, grandma, do you want to, you know, do this together? Or that's contentment for me. You mentioned having fun. What could be more fun than having the opportunity to talk to interesting people? Right. right. Well, it's talking to interesting people, like you and others who might, you know, end up watching this. And you. Yeah. Um, but um, fun for me is maybe more has to do with contentment, which is I'm happy getting these, writing these books. I'm happy. I have a, um, I look out, um, I have a little office area that looks out over conservation land. And I'm happy in the winter when it's snowing, of course, you don't know all about, well, you know about that, but you're, 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 you're in Florida. I look out the window and it's snowing, 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 and all the trees on this conservation land are covered with snow. And I can sit there and say, look how beautiful that was, that is, compared to when I had a house and I would see the snow coming down. And I would see my driveway pile up with snow and I would see um, ice have ice dams under my roof, and I would say, oh, it's snowing. How yucky, how miserable. I have to figure out how to deal with that. That makes me happy to be able to be able to just look at the snow and see how beautiful it looks. You've written four books and working on a fifth. Let's talk about you becoming a writer. Okay. How did that happen? Well, total serendipity is how it happened. I never thought I could write. I was not a good writer throughout all of my school years, including both my bachelor's, even though it was in English, it was, um, and my master's degree. When I went to um, 
in my one of my first classes at, in the PhD program, I don't even remember what the class was, but um, we had to. There was an optional essay that people could write, so I I wrote an, an essay, and I was the only one in the class that did. And so the teacher, the professor, asked me to read it, and I read it, and she said you should have that published. That was the first time in my entire life at age 64 years old that I knew that I could write. So that actually got published in the, um, the Antioch New England Literary Journal. Um, and um, so that was how I began writing. And then once I got my degree, I sent an article into the local newspaper about aging and not expecting at all that they would accept it. They accepted it, and then I wrote another one, and they accepted that one. So I actually wrote a column for my local newspaper, which is now defunct, uh, for more than 10 years, close to 11 years. I and remember then, reading the Newton tab in your oh, article. Oh, really? When okay. We the yeah, all right. And then, then I decided to turn my dissertation which is about the total environment in which people age into my first book. And that's aging in places. So that's how I became a writer. And I, and it's like, what a gift, you know, when you're 65, 70 years old to learn that you're, you can do something that you never thought you could do. Tell me about your latest book, Prohibition Wine. It's a family story. Yeah. So I have to say this was a, a, a labor of love. Um, my paternal grandmother, his name was Rebecca Warnick Goldberg. And there's all kinds of stories about those names, but I won't go into that. Um, when I was growing up, I heard stories from my father, my uncles, my aunt about what they went through growing up in Wilmington, Massachusetts, and for people who don't know the area, it's a small rural, I think it's a town, or I'm not sure, but it's a small, at that time, rural area um, that they grew up um, very poor. They were, uh, her, the parents were immigrants. Um, they raised chickens. They um, worked in local tanneries. Um, and then when my maternal, paternal grandmother had six children in 1918, my grandfather was run over by a train. And that left her with six kids aged 16 to two and a half. She had to figure out how to feed them and make sure that they stayed together as a family, because in those days, many kids would have been sent to an orphanage with only one mother parent. Um, but she was absolutely determined that the family would stay together and her children would all, including the girls, graduate from high school. So in, he died at late 1918. In 1919, prohibition was passed and it went into effect in 1920. And she decided that she needed extra money. And so she began to sell illegal alcohol during prohibition. 
which she did for um, about five or six years, and then she got caught. And so the book is about her. And um, it's, again, it's, it was a labor of love to bring her story into, the, in, into history. Um, and she made headline news in both the, the uh, Boston, the Boston Globe in 1925, and in the local uh, newspaper where they lived. Um, and so I, I, I decided I needed to write about her life, which I did, and it's gotten pretty good reviews. So I'm ha- very happy about that. Where's the book available? Uh, you can get the book on, um, you can get it on Amazon, but I prefer to use Bookshop, which um, um, they sell books for the independent uh, booksellers who get um, some cut rather than Amazon. So Bookshop, it's not, you can do it online. Okay, one more question. Yeah. Open-ended. Strange question. Is it ever too late? Well, you know, I wrote myself some notes, um, and one of those one of those points is is it um, um, what does too late mean, or what is never too late? I, you know, some people are afraid to start something new at an older age, um, but it's like. Again, on my based on my experience, I wanted to get a PhD when I was fifty, but I couldn't because of. I, but then I said, "What? Why can't I do it when I'm sixty-four? And so I learned that if you have the goal, a goal, and you have the will, it's never too late to do something that you've always wanted to do. That doesn't mean getting a PhD, but it's never too late to learn Mahjong. It's never too late to learn bridge. It's never too late to take a trip that you wanted to take or new or use a new technology. As long as you, your brain still works, it's really never too late to do something that you've always wanted to do. I wouldn't jump out of an airplane, but many people put that on their bucket list. So go do it. <laughs> now I'm not jumping out of perfectly good airplanes. Right, anymore. right. I'm not either. But whatever it is, go to do it. You know, and do it in a safe way, and don't do anything stupid, and and go do it. It's never too late. Marion, thank you so much. Thank you, and this, um, this has been an enlightening conversation. Good. I, I mean, just finally, I want to emphasize that people age the way. That's in a way that's good for them. Some people are lonely and isolated, and but in a way that's their choice. So, um, not but not always, but just keep living. Thank you. All right. If you found this podcast interesting, fun, or helpful, we'd appreciate it if you tell your friends and family and click on the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, I'm Larry Barsh, and you've been listening to Specifically for Seniors.